Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Uh, we have two more uh, this season, this year, and I'm very excited today to have someone who I follow all the time and I rely on for my Supreme Court information. Her name is Joan Biskupic. She is a CNN analyst, um, a longtime court journalist. She has a JD from Georgetown, and she has written four biographies of Supreme Court justices. Justice Roberts, Justice O'Connor, Justice Scalia, and Justice Sotomayor. And she is just quite simply one of the most important Supreme Court journalists in the country. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you, Eric, after we had to postpone at one point because of COVID, didn't we? We, we postponed a couple times, I think, because of world events. So, yeah. Right, but our timing turns out to be perfect because this is such a big court week. It is. And we're, I should tell people we're taping this on Thursday. It should come out tomorrow. It will come out tomorrow, absent emergency by the close of business. As we're talking, um, uh, the, the Congress is holding, the House is holding hearings on judicial ethics, which we'll get to later. But first, I've been meaning to talk to you for so long about this. Um, so you chose biographies, mostly, you know, you spent a lot of time on biographies of these four justices while you're doing everything else you do, which is a lot. Why biographies? What about that interested you? Well, you know, people are the story. And when you first let me know that you were going to ask how I got started, I thought, how did I get started? And oddly, it was back in 2000 when a publisher came to me and was interested in my writing a book on Clarence Thomas, who I didn't uh, write a book on. <laughs> Again, I had covered his confirmation hearings in 1991. I visited with his mother in Georgia, and I'd been tracking him. But I knew at that point I didn't have anything special for a book-length treatment of uh, Justice Thomas to write. But it got me thinking about doing bios. And obviously, I then went first with Sandra Day O'Connor, not because of the obvious first woman on the bench thing, but because of her former her, her work as a former state senator in Arizona, a former politician. And I developed a proposal around the idea of this is a woman who came to Washington knowing how to count votes. And that was sort of the thesis of that book uh, back in uh, 2005. You know, you know, you called me about that book and I gave I gave I, you a, I gave you a quote. And then back in 2005, I was very negative about Justice O'Connor. And I've actually uh, I've actually changed my mind a little bit. But go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt. Now she's looking pretty good, right? Well, certainly by comparison, <laughs> she's looking great. Yeah, right, right. But I, that was a, a lot of fun to do because I went through all her legislative files in Arizona, along with you know obviously her, her casework, and then also the Lewis Powell files down at Washington and Lee were a great source for me. And then next was Antonin Scalia, and he gave me a dozen on-the-record interviews, and those became the spine of that book. Uh, the next one was was not a straight bio. It's the one on Justice Sotomayor. Right. That was a political history of her nomination. And that one was harder because I had to struggle with what goes in, what goes out. But it gave me that was the book that I had a couple of good scoops in, including the one about what happened behind the scenes in the Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin case. And that whet my appetite for including more of what goes on behind the scenes in my books. And I built on that with the chief. And now, should I tell you what's coming up next? Yes. Yeah. Well, first, what, yeah. yes. In a second, though, your book on the on the chief, which is the, your most recent one before the one you're about to mention, um, had a couple of very big bombshells in it as well, at least, um, and, and is a great book. I want to recommend all these books to people who are interested in who these justices are, because you do a great job with that. So I just want to get that out. Now you have a new book coming out as well. Go ahead. 
Yeah, that that one will be out April 4th and uh, all of the audience can pre-order if yeah. uh, people want to. It's called Nine Black Robes. And this one is more of a group portrait, but it still sticks with the generally um, biographical look at these nine members of the court. Actually, I end up covering 12 members because I start essentially you know, with the death of Justice Scalia in 2016 and go up to just about now as I'm finishing the final touches on the galleys. And it's, it's a look at the Trump effect at the, uh, at the court, you know, trying to get inside, inside the chambers as much as possible during this real history making era uh, through Donald Trump and then uh, the immediate aftermath. So that's, that's the one that I'm finishing up now. And it's, I was a little bit worried Eric, that it might be harder to write because it wasn't like looking at one individual's life. It was right. looking at all the interaction among all these. But uh, with the turn that the court itself has taken, especially in the, the past year, uh, the arc of my book really uh, was helped by, frankly, the developments at the at the court. Um, so of all this, I'm, I, I know you, I, I've, I've written two books. I consider them, my, you know, I have three children and two books and you know, I consider them all my children. Um, I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, of the of the of the four biographies you've written so far, not counting, don't give anything away yet on the one coming out unless you want to. Um, what what are some of the a couple of the most surprising things you learned where you went, whoa? And, and I guess my and I follow up to that is to the extent there's an answer to that. How do you confirm whatever it was you found very surprising? Well, I, I, that's a great question because it's often easier to confirm several months or years later yes. because people will talk law clerks have left the marble palace and aren't feeling as much constraints on them the broadest new thing i learn each time is just how much any of us knew at the time of a news event you know i i cover all this stuff in in real time and you know just take uh, nominations for example I was covering the nominations of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer back in the 90s for the Washington Post. And I thought I was all over those, uh, <laughs> the selection process. And then when I went back and recreated those nominations in part for the, uh, the Sotomayor book, looking at who got to be the first Hispanic. Right. And, you know, back in the 90s, President Clinton and even uh, George H. W. Bush had said that they wanted to put the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court. And I got to see more about what the reality was. And that happens a lot with obviously the politics of, of things that go on in the court, but also in terms of cases and the development, I'm able to go back to the players and say, you know, this looked like there might have been a switch vote here. This might this looked like there could have been something going on. Can you tell me? And I, and I can learn uh, much more after the fact, because, uh, as I said, you know, uh, as much as at stake as it is with when the process is ongoing. With Justice Roberts, um, and if I overstate this, correct me. Um, I want to go back to NFIB versus Sibelius, which most people know is the big first Obamacare case. It's the case where the court said, you know, the mandate was not proper under the Commerce Clause, but it was a proper tax, struck down Medicaid and so on and so forth. Um, I think if I read you if I read you right that that we now know that Justice Roberts changed his mind somewhere in May. You don't know exactly when, I don't think. And that's not so surprising. And by the way, I'm in favor of justices agonizing like Justice Kennedy and changing his mind. I think mean, it's a good thing. It's hard issues. But I think you also suggested that he put pressure on Breyer and 
Kagan to join his invalidation of medic the med, the spending the spending power part and the Medicaid part and, and that and I and I by the way when in two, when 2012 when the case came out I, I said that was my undocumented and no data uh, no I have no data for thesis because I couldn't figure out Breyer Breyer was a you know worked for Ted Kennedy as you know Breyer for the people listening to this Breyer was a huge he's just a huge fan of Congress. So the idea that Breyer would strike down what Congress did there never made sense to me. Is it fair to say Roberts put pressure on them to change their votes? I think it's fair to say they felt some pressure, whether it was internal on their own part to change their votes because he had changed his vote on the individual mandate and right. they thought it would be right to meet him part way. Mm -hmm. uh, but they did. They did. They changed, they changed their votes. And you, you talked about, you know, when I get information and how I get information, I have to say, I remember exactly where I was <laughs> and probably I could pinpoint the exact date when I found out that not only had the chief switched his vote on the individual mandate, but also on the Medicaid part, because he had actually initially voted behind the scenes for the Medicaid expansion and then changed his oh, mind. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was... That was something to me. It was something to sort of understand, understand uh, the process that goes on. That uh, you know, it it's not as as developed as horse trading. It's uh, a little bit, you know, maybe some kind of log rolling if you want to use the legislative right. uh, uh, metaphor. But there's but there is there's give and take. There's give and take, and there are uh, implicit pacts made. Uh, throughout a term. And I'm always trying to get at those in the important cases. For someone who doesn't think that um, law matters much to the court, that's interesting to me. Um, so Joan, on my, my podcast, um, I'm morally and, and ethically obligated to mention Judge Richard Posner once a podcast. That's uh, kind of a running, no, I, want, I don't want to say joke, but it's a running theme of my podcast. He and I were very, very, very close before he got sick. Um, and he used to tell me all the time, and I have hours and hours and hours of, of, of tape recordings on this, which he knows will someday be public. Um, Kalishi, I mean, we all know that, that Richard Posner was an incredibly independent thinker and, and, you know, one of the most creative judges. He used to tell me all the time how important collegiality was to him and how what you described as going on possibly between Roberts and um, uh, Kagan and Breyer I think he felt that was just a normal part of working on a multi-member court that no one should be suspicious about because that's how, you know, he was obviously a pragmatist. That's how things get done. Um, when I, when you reported what you did and I, and I, and I told him about it, he was like, yeah, so what? I, I'm not sure I had the same attitude about it. What, what, I'm curious what your reaction well, to that is. Well, I, you know, I, I, um, in both camps, I think uh, that's how that's how cases get decided. Uh, there is give and take, as I said that, and and I think that it's helpful when when the justices feel like they're bringing something to the table, and no one is deprived of everything. You know that is it is the uh, deliberative process, and they have to have a majority. They have to figure out a majority somehow, and in that case, the end result didn't move the law the way we thought it might get moved. Remember, right. everybody was expecting, everybody was expecting uh, Obamacare to be struck down. Although I have to say, Eric, 
I was not. Me and neither. I kept predicting <laughs> I was kept I kept predicting that Roberts was going to go the way he did. Now, at the time that the decision came out and everybody talked about a switch vote, because I had just presumed he was never going to strike it down, it took me a while to accept the fact that he had indeed switched his vote. <laughs> but right. but right. that's what happened. That's well, what happened. And I do but I do think that what you raised from uh, Judge Posner is a is a good thing to for everybody to keep in mind that uh, this is it is a process and uh, hopefully the, the justices or all judges come willing to um, partake in in that uh, that process of uh, coming to a majority opinion. So, Joan, I'll be honest, I, I have not totally thought through yet how I feel about that idea. It feels like. If, I, I'm not saying I'm, this is very tentative and, I, and I'm, I'm going to write about this someday, um, but I haven't yet. It feels like if Breyer and Kagan are thinking, and I'm not, now we're all supposing here, but, you know, Medicaid seems obviously constitutional. The court hasn't struck a spending power, a, a law down under the spending power since 1934 or five. It's now 2012. We know Justice Breyer is very Congress friendly. This is against everything he's ever said and written. But... Now that the chief has moved on a totally separate issue, well, maybe we should move on that issue too. Or maybe there was pressure. I actually believe there was pressure, but I have no data for that. Um, doesn't that bother you a little? I'm not really in a position to say it bothers me. I'll tell you okay. one thing about that context at the time. I think they and many other people believed that more states were going to go for it. The Medicaid expansion, so there wouldn't have been the coercion idea. Remember, I get you know, it. Yes. so you know, so yes. so maybe they didn't think that the consequences were going to be as severe as they turned out being. You know, going into 2013 right. and 14, so there were a lot of factors factors there. But I, I get it. I get exactly what you're saying, and it, it happens from both sides. You know, Justice Alito, Justice uh, Thomas. They talk all the time about not wanting to compromise, wanting to know where each justice is. And uh, in fact, that was one of the lines that Clarence Thomas said uh, last May when he was praising Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You knew where she stood. Right. You knew where she stood. Right. And, and that's in contrast, I'm sure, to how he regards the chief at times. He's not quite sure where the chief stands. Well, I wish Justice Thomas was less sure, but you don't have to comment on that. Um, so <laughs> I've been waiting like six years to ask you this question, really. Um, and what I'm going to say is going to sound crazy. Uh, I will say in my defense that Dahlia Lithwick, who we both, I, you know, we, I think is one of the best commentators also, um, was willing to do a whole podcast with me back before podcasts were a thing on Amicus on this very point I'm about to ask you about. So I had this theory about the chief. Again, it's totally in my head. I have no data. I don't have any you know, real proof. So here's a man who I think, based on your biography, and we all know, you know, always a brilliant lawyer, always ambitious. Um, and I'm assuming being chief justice of the Supreme Court was about, you know, as dream a job as he ever would have conceived of. I don't think this is a man who ever wanted to be president or anything. Um, so he gets to be chief justice in 2005. But it's not his court. And it turns out in the first term after he becomes Chief Justice, Justice Kennedy bats 100% in 5-4 cases. And really until Justice Kennedy retires, he bats like 98% in 5-4 cases. Um, and, and you and others would refer to this as the Kennedy court, which is what it was for many, many years. I think that Justice Roberts, 
based on your reporting and others, was obviously conflicted about NFIB. I think that, I'm not saying there's one thing that made a difference, but I cannot believe in the back of his head, because if you go back and look at the journalism in May of that year, it was all about what Kennedy is going to do, what's Kennedy going to do, what's Kennedy going to do. In the back of his head, or maybe in the front, well, this is the way for me to change that narrative. It will not be the Kennedy court after this case, because people forget that NFIB was the biggest case, what, since Bush versus Gore, probably? You know, maybe Citizens United, but maybe not. Um, do you think there's any credence to that theory at all? You wrote a book on the guy. Um, Eric, I hate to disappoint you, but yeah. I'm not going to share your version of pop psychology. Okay. Okay. My version is that, <laughs> that Kennedy was never going to vote to uphold. Obama. Well, I know that. Yeah, sure. Kennedy wasn't, sure. Kennedy wasn't in play, right. uh, even though I know some people were reporting that, but Kennedy wasn't in play. And here's the truth. I think this is and always will be the Roberts court for as long as he's chief. He has lost, you know, we'll take Obergefell versus Hodges. He lost and used his one and only dissent from the bench there. He lost in a big way in Dobbs. And I've written that it was a loss, you know, the defining loss of his generation. But look at everywhere else that he wins. He wins on campaign finance. He wins on uh, racial policies. He wins on separation of church and state. And I still think he, uh, he, wield sufficient power over this court to have it called the Roberts Court uh, in name and uh, mostly in outcome. I'm going to just push back a teeny bit, then we'll move on. Um, I, I do think, though, that, um, you know, that from 2005 until 2018, maybe Roberts doesn't care about the popular press and the media. I, I'm sure that's probably true. But I do think there was an overwhelming, um, both among law professors and the media, that the, the vote that counted was Kennedy. The vote that counted was Kennedy's over and over and over and over again. Well, well I'm not going to disagree with you on that yeah. to the extent that a lot of times that vote from Kennedy was on the conservative side. Sure. I mean, we have the, we have the handful of cases, you know, abortion uh, in the end affirmative action in the university of texas at austin case but uh this, this I, well, is and four and four been, gay, and gay rights cases obviously yeah yeah i know I, i'm definitely giving you that i yeah. mean and i think that's very important but i i think we cannot ignore how increasingly conservative and increasingly this court has been in the image of john roberts uh even before we got the trump appointees i agree with that um one last question about justice roberts and then we'll move on I wrote it, yeah. and, and, you, and you can do a no comment on this if you like. Um, I, I wrote a piece for George, for Washington and Lee, excuse me, um, uh, last year, where I really, I talked about all the cases you just talked about. I talked about the campaign finance cases, the, the recent religion cases, where Justice Roberts has gotten his way, you know, completely. Um, and a bunch of, and Shelby County, where Roberts obviously got his way, and, you know, he had that wish since 1981, um, and so on and so forth. And I actually think, I'm not talking about his personality style now. I'm talking about his, his opinions. I think hubris defines a lot of Justice Roberts' jurisprudence. Um, the way he has changed the free exercise clause, the way he overruled South Carolina versus Katzenbach, a major Supreme Court case, without even saying he was overruling it in Shelby County and the case that came before that. Um, and a lot of other cases as well. Um, uh, the way to stop discriminating discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. We all want to end race discrimination. 
I don't know how to do it. I'm guessing I have some ideas, but I don't know how. He thinks he knows how. Do you think I'm being too unfair there? And you can duck it or say, yes, Siegel, you're being too unfair or agree with me. <laughs> Any one of those options. What I will say is that you are picking out the defining lines of his that I think reflect exactly who John Roberts is. Mm -hmm. His idea of, uh, you know, race-based categories. Uh, when you think of when you think of a, a line that you didn't say, but that I think also defines him from Obergefell, just who do we think we are? Yeah, that kind of line. And so I think you've got the the key the key messages from him that show us what John Roberts is all about. In terms of his motivation, I'll let you. You Fair have enough. the last word on that. <laughs> Fair enough. I get that. Okay. Um, so this next question, I think, is probably just right in line with your upcoming book. So I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I I'm glad this question I think aligns with that. You've been covering the court for a very long time, um, and unlike a lot of journalists, um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of journalists, and I always say to them, "You have a really hard job because you don't get to interview your subjects. Most journalists get to interview their subjects." You know, I remember Adam Liptak once saying to me, you know, that's one of the big differences in his job. He doesn't get to call him up and ask for a quote, you know, <laughs> most of the time. Um, but you are one of the few journalists who actually does talk to the justices, you know, the ones you've written about. But, but my question is, has the atmosphere around the court changed in a, inside the court, excuse me, in a serious way? Or is it mostly just window dressing and business as usual? I do think it's changed. You know, I obviously can't go back as far as the nine scorpions in a bottle sure, era. Sure. Uh, but I know that in the 90s, there was a, an easiness among the justices that I was aware of. And Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was a big part of that. She was always arranging social outings. She was always trying to bridge differences, you know, in terms of their, their lives and, and on the law. And again, uh, Justice uh, Thomas referred to... Uh, referred to her uh, earlier uh, in this year about Justice O'Connor and and being able to work with Justice Ginsburg. And I think they they sort of, there was a level of respect for the differences that I often wonder about whether it's there now. And I do think part of it has come from the nominees over the years. People are appointed for their specific views and the court itself reflects the polarization that's out, out in the country. And uh, I know... I, I sense that there isn't as much trust among them, and I don't know how much time they spend together uh, when they're not when they're not on the bench. I don't have a real full picture of that right now. But the one thing I know best is that when they do come together most, it's when they feel pressure from the outside, when they feel embattled because of the media or political scrutiny. They always close ranks. Uh, but when it's uh, when they don't have that kind of pressure from the outside they uh, they tend to be at each other more. Right now, of course, they are under so much more public scrutiny and should be under public scrutiny yeah. for activities on and off the bench. They, they, I love that's a great answer. I, and I do think they do close ranks. I think Justice Brennan, to some degree, played that role in the court for a long time, too, of kind of oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. making sure, every, and he, of course, he served 30, whatever he was, 31, 32 years, of making sure people got along. He would change his votes for sure. To compromise with the conservatives all, all the time. Oh, I have to say, yeah. um, for you know, I just love Justice's papers. I spend a lot of time <laughs> in the Library of Congress, and and the Brennan the Brennan case files have been wonderful. 
Yeah, I'm sure they have been. Um, Steve Vermeil was my colleague, Joan. He's one of the co-authors of Brennan's biography for those listening. And um, I've had access to those files too from Steve. And they are fascinating. They are fascinating files, I have to say. Um, so one more question along these lines, I think. Um, I, I think he's, I believe he's still your colleague, Jeffrey Tubin, uh, in the nine. I forget if it's the first sentence. I always say this on my podcast. I forget if it's the first sentence of the book or the last sentence of the book. But he says, basically, we get the Supreme Court we deserve. And America in the 90s, at least up until Newt Gingrich and, you know, up until that era, but even after that, was less polarized than it is today. It just was. I think we both agree on that. Do we, is this, you, the, the fact that the court is more polarized today internally, maybe Jeff is, maybe Tubin is right, that, that that's the court we deserve in this time of unconscionable, I think, polarization in American politics. No, I don't know if we deserve it, but we've gotten it. Yeah. And part of it is because, uh, you know, for, former President Trump set out to do something with his nominations and other presidents have done that in the past at times. But when you, let's just go back to the 90s, as I have a couple of times, when you think of, let's just think of the nomination of Stephen Breyer. I mean, that came about because he had worked with Teddy Kennedy and Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy really was able to uh, wield some influence with uh, President Clinton, and that's largely how he got it. So people get get appointed for different reasons. There are a lot of highly qualified people out there. There's a, there's a field that, that a president can choose from, but they go into that field with, with certain priorities. And with the Trump appointees, it was essentially, you know, the president working with Don McGahn, working with the Federalist Society, working with Mitch McConnell to figure out who would be best for the court. And uh, they were they were pretty consistent on, on what they wanted. Yeah, they I, got I, it. I'm, I'm, you don't have to respond to this. I'm pretty sure President Trump, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he he delegated that task almost completely to those to, the, to, to Don McGahn and Leonard Leo. I can't imagine other than wanting a woman to replace Ginsburg, which I think Trump intuited, I doubt he had much substantive, <laughs> substantive information. Well, no, that's right. Yeah. That's right. He probably didn't even, he probably had not even heard the name Neil Gorsuch until 2016. Uh, you know, he just wouldn't have been in so much in those circles, but, but yes, he did delegate it, but it came from the vision that he uh, embraced that was from Don McGahn and, and Leonard Leo. So let me and add- McConnell. So speak, okay, so speaking of Leonard Leo, and I, 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 Joan, I've said before when talking to my guests that, you know, I, I always send in a very rough, very rough, you know, kind of roadmap ahead of time. And then we often go off the roadmap. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're about to do um, because I want to ask you this. So I, I, I did speak at the National Federalist Society Convention a couple of weeks ago. And a lot of people I respect, a lot of, I'm a progressive, a lot of progressives I respect, like Erwin Chemerinsky and Mike Dorff, um, I've drawn a line, they'll do student events, but not national events. And I get that. And, and I'm not saying they're right, or they're wrong and I'm right. But here's what I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I do a lot of FedSoc events for students. And um, I think there's a big difference between the rank and file, who I consider to be thousands of lawyers and students who really mean well, who are just wanting, who are there for debates. Um, and uh, I, many of whom I don't think voted for Trump, to be honest, um, at, least, at least not the second time. Um, and, and the leadership of the Federal Society, which I've said in the New York Times with Caroline Fredrickson, the leadership is just needs to come clean that they, in fact, do, 
you know, they, they selected judges for Trump, basically. And they certainly helped the, George Bush. Am I fair in making that distinction, do you think, between the rank and file and the leadership? I'm very harsh on the leadership, but I'm very friendly with and sympathetic to the rank and file. Well, no, I, I think I think you have a good point there, and I'll tell you why. Because I, when I speak on college campuses, I will often speak to students who are part of the Federalist Society, and you know, there there are just you know thousands of students yes. out there who are part yeah. of this. So, so I think your point is well taken that these are uh, young people who you know like the theories that the leaders are espousing, but they like them in terms of the idea ideology, not so much of the political world necessarily. So uh, I, I think it's it's fine to draw that line. And you've got other progressives who speak at the Federalist Society. You know, David Cole of the ACLU was right sure. there with you uh, yeah. at the National Convention too. Jamal Green and Akhil Lamar yeah. as well. Although Akhil, Akhil, we have to <laughs> footnote Akhil. But, but Jamal Green is certainly a, a liberal all the way down, and he was there. Um, one of the reasons I did it was people like David Cole, Jamal Green, Akhil Lamar, in my field are household names. Um, I'm not a household name. And I felt like, you know, that invitation helps non-elite law professors like me, you know, show that we can get invited to things too. That's one of the reasons I did it, to be honest. Um, I know, um, but it's, you know, it's true. I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot of elitism among legal academics, liberal, moderate, and conservative. Um, there is, there is. Should there be an ethics code for the justices, Joan, that's binding? Uh, well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, to the audience that right now there's a House committee that's yeah. looking at the issue. Uh, and I, I don't know what the best solution would be, but they have to do something. Uh, presumably, the justices have been talking about various options. Uh, I do think they probably could have saved themselves some problems by actually having done something already, not to be, you know, just having incident after incident uh, erupt with this vacuum coming from the court, uh, the refusal to give the, you know the st state of play over any consideration of ethics rules, the unanswered questions about the possible conflicts raised by uh, Ginny Thomas, and uh, you know the as I said as we're taping this now, uh, the Reverend uh, Rob Shank is on the Hill talking about what he believes was a leak from the 2014 Hobby Lobby case. And, and I have to say, the court did not help itself much in the letter that they sent out uh, from the legal counsel. I thought it just raised more questions. It, it seemed defensive. And as a journalist, I was very surprised that they would defend themselves against the Times story, in part by saying, well, Politico didn't find anything here. It, it, it just did not. Uh, I didn't think they represented the situation well from their point of view. And I think that uh, I can't imagine that the letter that went out from the court from the legal counsel wasn't vetted in some way by the chief, but it, many of us are looking ahead to December 31st when the chief will put out his annual uh, year-end, uh, not letter, year-end report, year-end yes. report, and we'll see if he even touches it, which he should. He should at least just take it on. Well, the last time he did that in 2011, he basically punted and said, we just, we're the highest court. We don't, I mean, he, he didn't give a good explanation. Um, all right. Well, speaking of that jet, December 31st year end report. Um, I'm going to try to say this in, in a way that doesn't expose. Um, so it's my understanding that there are a number of journalists, but not all, who get. So this report comes out every year at 6 p.m. 
on New Year's Eve. Now we can, I, I will comment that I think the symbolism of that is horrific, that we're going to issue this one year end report at a time when no one in the world is going to pay attention to it on, on New Year's Eve at 6 p.m. They, he could do it December 24th at 6 p.m. and it wouldn't matter. He doesn't. But I believe some journalists get that report three or four hours earlier and some do not. Um, am I right about that? About the fact that some journalists wouldn't get it? No, some, some journalists get it. get it three hours before it's published. It's, well, it, there's, it's uh, quarantine for three it is, hours. It is routine embargoed. Embargoed, embargoed. is the phrase. You yes. Think of, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, 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 that's okay. Uh, it's common in Washington to get uh, early notice of reports so that you can prepare them, but then have a, a, a time time set for when they can be released. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. I'm glad. So that's good. I'm glad. It, I mean, I, I guess if it's, I guess if it's common, it's common. It still feels a little, especially in a world where there are a lot of, um, you know, Eugene Volokh, who has the Volokh conspiracy, you know, is for all practical purposes, a journalist, as well as a law professor. He doesn't get that report four hours early. Um, mm, you know, okay. so I, but, but I'll, I'll just leave that. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll leave that there. Speaking of ethics, <laughs> let's talk about Ginny Thomas for a second. Um, so in 2012, I was the only liberal law professor in the United States who wrote that Justice Kagan absolutely had to recuse herself in NFIB. I wrote about it in many different places. My, all my friends got mad at me. Um, I don't want to relitigate that here. But in the context of doing that at the time, I said the calls for Justice Thomas to recuse because of his wife's activities were not persuasive because we had to be very careful about holding a spouse's activities, any spouse, against their, you know, their, their husband judge of any level, judge, um, what, Fle who was it, not Fletcher, judge, Reinhardt's wife was head of the ACLU in, 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 the, in Southern California. Um, but I didn't know at the time, in 2012, that Heritage had been paying her a lot of money to do a lot of different things, including find jobs for people while Bush versus Gore was being argued in the Bush administration, oh, in the upcoming Bush administration that hadn't been elected yet officially. Um, what should be, so I don't want, I don't have to talk about Tom, Jenny, if you don't want to, I'd love it if you did, but what should be our general thinking of this? What, what should, what, what should spouses of Supreme Court, and let's just leave it to Supreme Court, what should they be allowed to do and not allowed to do? I think it's a good question. It's a question that's been raised because we've, learned in just, you know, this year yeah. of more activities of Ginny Thomas through the Mark Meadows emails and her uh, encouraging him and others with the Trump administration to fight the election results. You know, this is a, this was a really important cause to her at a time when her husband was sitting on cases uh, related to it. So I think it's a question that has to be asked. And I think it's one that it would probably help the court to, you know, at least acknowledge that there are there are ethical lines here. And I don't know. I, I have to say, I, I don't know that he necessarily, you know, failed to do anything right or wrong relative to recusal, because you know you'd have to look at particular cases. And we haven't had we haven't had a really we've had cases that have obviously involved. Uh, Trump litigation and January 6th, but, you know, perhaps he would say they weren't directly on point to what she was doing with uh, with the administration lawyers at the time. But it 
but look at what it look at how it shadows the court look at right. how it diminishes public confidence right. so that's that's how i come at it I, I come at this whole thing not to sort of point to anybody's spouse or any particular justice but more how the institution as a whole has real problems with transparency they work very hard not to tell us what's exactly going on and then these things erupt and uh you have to go back and try to get some sort of explanation and they're on the defensive when they're giving it if they give anything at all i think their i think their mantra is we hope this goes away and it's there's just been one thing after another that uh maybe this time it, it won't go away and even if that even if perhaps it would wouldn't it be more responsible to just take it on be more responsible and have some sort of um ethics guidelines that you make public I would certainly think so. And, you know, I so I, I write this sentence all the time. I work with Fix the Court, you know, a lot. And their great organization, Gabe Roth, was on this podcast a few weeks ago, uh, a month ago or so. Um, I write this sentence all the time. Every judge in America is bound by a legally binding ethics code, except for the nine most important judges in the country. And that can't make any sense. This can't make sense. And if nothing else, whether it makes sense or not, you would think they would be embarrassed. Not because I'm writing it, but everybody writes that. You would think that you would think there'd be some institutional. Yeah, we got to fix that because that that just that idea is so crazy. Every judge. What they say, and you know what they say, I know and I know what they say. They say we actually abide by what lower court judges do. We actually, and there are reasons that we're not going to adopt the formal code because we can't have people substitute. There are only nine of us, so people can't substitute as easily. Well, those are things that they will say to some extent at different times, but what they need to do is be more transparent about exactly what is binding them and what guidelines they are operating under. And if there's any way, any, any checks on them at all inside among their colleagues, uh, you know, it, it was around the time when I was writing the Scalia book that the whole duck hunting with Dick Cheney thing went right. on. And there, there was turmoil among the justices about how, uh, uh, Justice Scalia was handling it. And, and it was, again, in that case, I really had to give uh, Justice Scalia credit, at least for putting out that memo. Remember the, uh, I think it was like a 23-page memo. I gave him tremendous, the, the, yeah, there have been, I think, either three or four memos in the history of the Supreme Court explaining recusal decisions. And that's crazy. And I get, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm as, there's, there's no bigger Scalia critic than me. Um, I am. I, I've written both professionally and personally because I think he was terrible personally. We don't have to get into that. But I gave him tremendous credit for that, for explaining his reasons, because that's what they should do. I mean, isn't that obvious? That's what they should do. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you remember where you were? I'm sure you do. When the Dobbs leak came out? I, I do. And in fact, I was almost in a sit sitting like this. I was. <laughs> on a Zoom call on that Monday night with um, two daughters. Wow. And uh, it, we usually do it on Sunday night. And for some reason, oh, I just gotten back from California. So my husband and I were in our dining room and we were on a Zoom call. And fortunately, my cell phone was nearby. And, you know, because you know, it was 8.30, 8.32. Right. I know, I know, I know, I know and, where I was. <laughs> and and um, my boss from CNN called and I said, oh my God. So I immediately... <laughs> said to said to these daughters uh i'm leaving the room and i go racing up to my spare bedroom and i talked to my bosses and they said how quickly can you get to the cnn bureau and i drove in and uh you know immediately 
did my TV thing, but I also had to write a story because, you know, I'm mainly what I do here is twofold. I, I do TV, but I, I love to write. Yeah. So I write a lot for our website. And uh, in my haste, Eric, you'll love this. I rushed to the car, rushed into the bureau, uh, and I um, I somehow lost my laptop. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> not funny, well, but it's kind what, of funny. What happened? No, <laughs> but what happened was it had slid. I had just thrown my bag into the back seat, and in my haste down North Capitol, heading <laughs> heading to the CNN bureau from my home in D.C., it had uh, fallen out of the bag and under my seat. So it, it caused all sorts of problems and I probably didn't sleep for 24 hours, but I do remember everything about that evening. And uh, one, of, one daughter said, boy, this reminds me of Bush v. Gore, which I lived through also when, uh, you know, we we had Thanksgiving and then within days I had to go off and do that and say, you guys are on your own. So, you yes, know, I remember it all vividly. So I, I think if, if, in a, if someday the country survives all this, um, an historian writes about like the last 30 years of the Supreme Court, 40 years, whatever. Um, you know, there are some defining moments. Bush versus Gore is clearly one of them, I think, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I think I think Shelby County was pretty defining, you know, in some senses. Yeah. Um, well, and that's I, I bring that up all the time when we're talking about the chief and the chief's yeah. influence. Yeah. Um, you know, after Bush versus, and of course, Obergefell, uh, and one of the reasons I strongly, strongly, you know, my whole career been yelling about cameras in the courtroom is because how beautiful for people who believe in, you know, in in LBGTQ rights, it would have been if we could have all celebrated together in a more, you know, people don't remember this, but back then there wasn't live streaming or anything. So, um, you know, there was no shared moment there that there could have been. Um, I think Obergefell is is, is kind of a defining moment. And then I think the leak is right up there. Do you agree with that? Boy, I, well, I'm not going to forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I am not going to forget it. It is not, I have to say, you know, I, I give political all sorts of credit for getting it and publishing it. And, you know, I have, through the course of my career, gotten lots of stuff early, but I've never gotten something to that extent ever at all. And that's, uh, that was, you know, obviously it, it made a difference in many ways and it, it's made a difference in how people understand the court and uh, so it was it was uh, an earthquake of sorts. Yeah. Um, how long? So when I when I I heard about it at 822, whatever it is you're talking about, I remember. And the very first I mean, I was skeptical, obviously, you know, I think I think most people were skeptical at first. So at very first, um, although I'm a big fan of Politico and, and, and Josh Gerstein and I have we've talked. But um, I, I said to my wife, I got to read it. Just let me leave me alone. I got to read it, you know. <laughs> And after about three pages, I realized, and I tweeted one of two things. I tweeted, there's only one of two things going on. Either this is authentic or it's the best forgery of a legal decision I've ever seen because it sounded just like Alita would write a draft opinion. <laughs> did you do the same? Did you go through that same? Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what had happened earlier that Monday. I had just gotten back from a, a conference out at Stanford and I had done some, I was doing some reporting because you probably recall that the Wall Street Journal had run an editorial yes, yes. a few days earlier yes. about how their, uh, Justice Kavanaugh might be going wobbly and that Justice the Chief might be really pressuring those on the far right to not reverse Roe. So I had spent my Monday doing a lot of reporting before this leak came out the, the day. 
And I, before I left, I told one of my bosses, I said, you know, I think I can write a story saying that at this point, it looks like there are five locked in and the, the chief is not making headway just because of, you know, what the Wall Street Journal had put out there. And I would have written it with a, you know, a million caveats about how the process still has several weeks to go. But when that story broke, I had it in my mind that that's where the case had gone, you know, so I had already been ready to sort of believe that there was a, a majority and Alito was writing it and they were locked in. Also, just because I've seen documents before, you know, through justices' papers, mostly, you know, in the archives, the look and everything just seemed so real. Yeah. And they had included in their story, Eric, you know, about how they had vetted it so much, which has made me think, and I've said this with political people in the audience, I wonder if they actually know who, who they got it from directly because they did spend a lot of time vetting it. When I get stuff from justices, you know, along the way, or maybe somebody who's close inside, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to do a, as much troubleshooting because I trust my source so immediately, but but who knows, who knows? I, I, I do not know how they got it. Uh, I didn't know how they got it in May and today uh, in December, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know much more. Joan, I'm sorry, I, I can't let I um I, I can't let that last sentence pass um without comment. I mean, we're we're running out of time. I could talk to you for a month, but um, when you get stuff from justices, I think is what you just said. Um, do you get stuff from justices very often? Get, let me just say, I get information. It's probably the best way to say it. And well, and often, as I said earlier in the podcast, often what I'm doing is going back and recreating, right? Recreating what happened. So, so that's, I, I will be the first to say, but not in any specific, <laughs> specific ways that I, I am in touch with various justices and I do find out uh, information, but I want to make real clear, I've never gotten anything of the dimension that Politico had gotten. And typically what I do with information I get is I use it after, later, once I see how a ruling went to, to recreate how it got there, because I typically am suspicious of the state of play when I'm finding out from just one or maybe two justices while negoti negotiations are underway, which way it's gonna go, because yeah. I know what can happen. Um, and I, you know, I obviously don't wanna in interfere with the process, but I also want to use whatever information I get for the most complete understanding of what would go go on. And that's why when I found out about the double switches of the chief in the Obamacare case, or when I found out about what had happened with Kennedy and Justice Sotomayor in the Fisher versus University of Texas case, and then plenty of other things I found out through the years, mostly in uh, 2020, you know, I wait until I can gather enough information from sort of a bit of a critical mass of justices to understand what had happened. Well, and I, and I have to say, I think that's one of the reasons you're one of the best reporters. And, and I find your work to be exceptionally careful, um, which, I, which I assume is as high a compliment. One, I, I love your writing, but I also think you write very carefully. And I think that's a great talent. Um, and that's why I follow you, whatever you write. Um, so you, you started covering the court when? Well... <laughs> I'm going to have to admit how long I've been covering it. <laughs> okay. I, my first interview ever with a justice was in 1990. And it happened to be with Justice Scalia wow. when I was with Congressional Quarterly, believe it or not. And then I switched to the Washington Post in 1992. 
uh, right after I had my daughter. Uh, on that Zoom call, it was a daughter and a stepdaughter, but my daughter uh, was born in 1992. And then I uh, started working at the Washington Post in September of 92. And then I have been, so I have been, what are we, 30 years, Right. <laughs> 30 years mm -hmm. doing this, 30 years. So I started teaching in 91. So we have similar, um, you know, I started the year Justice Thomas started. Um, here's my question, a couple of questions, then we'll call it a day. Um, first of all, do you ever get information from law clerks? Uh, yes, but it's not, you know, it's hard to get it from them when they're serving. Yeah. Because they're so skittish, and I don't—I actually don't want to start putting people on the spot. But I can—but I can get plenty of information every after somebody's left the building. Okay. But I have to pick and choose. You know, like here's one thing that I'm careful about: the law clerks tend to be chamber centric. They believe in their own justice so much yeah. that you have to be—you have to be kind of careful. That's why, as I said, my general method is to try to get a couple of different justices because everybody, you know, we all see things from, through our own lens. So, but yes, I have, I, I talked to law clerks. Yeah. Um, not, not in your role as a reporter necessarily, you probably can't separate this. So, um, but I did, but I did warn you about this question. Um, do you have a, a, a least favorite justice and a most favorite justice that you're willing to talk about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only in limited fashion. And sure. it, it actually brings me back to something that you had said about Bill Brennan earlier. Mm -hmm. um, there's one justice who I am incredibly fond of, who was never a book subject for me, and who actually has not given me as much access as just about every other, many of the others. And it's David Souter. You know, John, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, David, I, I'm sorry. Hold on. I knew you were going to say that. And I just want to say a running theme of this podcast, from conservatives to liberals, over 85 podcasts, probably 10 times is how he's my favorite justice of this generation. And so many people feel that way about him. I'm sorry. I just had to throw that well, in. Go ahead. I didn't mean to no, that's okay. And uh, I reach out to Justice Souter all the time for things. And most of the time I get back these notes that, that are, you know, just a paragraph long and are just so lovely Yeah. as he says no. And <laughs> what I thought I would do is tell you what um, Justice Souter said of Brennan, since you had mentioned Brennan. Yeah. At his memorial service, he described um, kind of the Brennan touch uh, when he was talking to Brennan. And I, I, I think I've got this right. I, I plucked it uh, uh, out of a law review recently just so I could even have it in front of me because I just adore it. He said um, that the justice would tell him that some pedestrian opinion he had written was not just a very good opinion, but a truly great one. <laughs> then a minute later, Brennan would go on and tell David Souter, it wasn't just that it was great, but it was a genuine classic of the judge's art. And I'd sit there and I'd listen to him. And after a while, I'd start to think that maybe he was right. Maybe <laughs> it was pretty good. And when inevitably I'd realize again that it wasn't, I'd still feel great myself. I always <laughs> felt great when I was with Bill. And I have to say, isn't that a wonderful thing to say about anybody? It really is. Um, um, well, I mean, so you're, you're like the eighth person who has said Justice Souter, you know, without coming out and saying, I know you didn't say he's my favorite, but you are, you're fond of him. I've not yet met a person other than people in the media, you know, back the conservatives back in the early 90s, um, who were not and are not fond of David Souter. I also think he really tried to get it right. Um, when I say right, I don't mean in an objective sense. I think, like Ernie Young tells me all that, he really tried hard to do the best job he could in a way that's maybe slightly different than the other justices. Is that fair? I don't know. Okay. 
Okay. I don't know. Okay. I think they all think they're doing their best they can. I think that's just human nature. Okay, fair, 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 fair enough. Um, all right, let's end with this. I want to go back to Sandra Day O'Connor because A, you wrote a great book about her. Um, B, that's the first time you and I met when you called me about that book. Um, and C, um, I think it's really relevant to the times we're living in. So my understanding is, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, that, that Justice Ginsburg really did have a fondness for Justice O'Connor, e even though they disagreed a lot on, in big cases. Um, and that Justice O'Connor really saw the law as where can we find a, um, a point where we can all at least agree to disagree civilly and you get a little and I get a little and we'll do the best we can to find the center-ish part of American politics. She was a conservative, but she wasn't, she was not like, I mean, she was, you know, less conservative than almost any other of the conservative justices um, uh, other than Souter and Blackman, I guess. Um, my question about her and her and that, and, and, and her judging style was this day only. At Georgia State, she said, I never look back. Every case is really hard, but when I'm done, I'm done. And I, you know, I did the best I can. Um, but she really did try, I think, to build camaraderie and consensus. If I have that right about her, wouldn't it be great to have someone like that today? Well, you know, Eric, it's funny that you even cast it that way. First of all, I think you have captured her correctly. And she did have that mantra of not wanting to look back, which I think, yeah. gosh, how hard is that to cultivate? Most of us are always, you know, second guessing, but she, she, she was always moving forward. Um, but, you know, when we were talking earlier about the uh, process of deliberations among the justices, when there might be, you know, certain, you know, implicit pacts between justices and maybe, you know, uh, compromises uh, to the point that some people might see it as, you know, a version of horse trading. You know, that's that's what she was all about. Yeah. She tried to get out ahead of cases. You would you would just love to see some of the correspondence that she wrote to Lewis Powell about, you know, she would send him what she believed would remain a personal note, but I was glad that Lewis Powell put it in his archive about wanting to get ahead to, you know, I want to talk to Byron, as in Byron White, early so that maybe he will understand that this would be a good way to go on this case and then maybe we can, we can get, you know, four others on here and then we can do this. And she was always thinking ahead like that. And I, I think her, her, it wasn't just because she did have a, a politician slash legislator's instinct on how to bring people to the table. It was her idea of what would be best for the law. And, you know, you, you asked about uh, David Souter as somebody who believed he really wanted to get it right. And I think Sandra Day O'Connor too wanted to get it right. And probably, you know, most of the justices, if not all that we have on this very conservative court also want to get it right. But she accommodated a lot, many more ideas and um, uh, sort of, a, a, a lot more seemed to go into the mix for Sandra Day O'Connor, and yes. I, I think you captured it there. I love that phrase, Joan, accommodating other ideas. Once more with Posner, sorry. Um, Posner publicly said he was wrong all the time, all the time. He had this big running debate with Ronald Dworkin. Eventually said, I was wrong, he was right. Uh, his whole law and economic stuff, he kind of walked back eventually. Um, and, and just people know I think this, Posner's the smartest person I've ever known. Um, the ability to... Um, to, to look at something and say, you know what, maybe I don't, maybe I have more to learn. I, I think there are, I, 
don't have to comment on this. I, I think we've had a lot of justices who don't feel that way. I know Scalia didn't feel that way. Um, and and I, I miss that about Sandra Day O'Connor. I think she was flexible in a way that is probably a good thing on this kind of institution. Um, once again, what's the name of your new book? Nine Black Robes. Nine Black Robes. It comes out when? April 4th, 2023. I will be ordering it in about an hour. Um, and I hope and I hope everybody else does. Thank you so much, John. I've been meaning to talk to you for so long. This has been so wonderful. I wish we could go on two more hours. Um, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Eric. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much.